Hi, and welcome to Self-Care with Drs. Sarah. I'm Sarah B. And I'm Sarah R. And the topic for this episode is the imposter syndrome. So this is a very fruitful topic uh, for Sarah and myself. Sarah, do you want to give what you think is like a pretty good definition? Uh, yeah, I can try. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the imposter syndrome is, uh, it's, it's this feeling that you're a fake or an imposter. And despite all evidence to the contrary mm-hmm. and all accolades and all accomplishments, you uh, acrobatically discover ways mm-hmm. that why these are really false and your true nature is actually not as smart or as capable as what people think you are. And, and so you're just bound to be found out to be the stupid person that you think uh, you are <laughs> um, <laughs> at some point in the future. <laughs> right away, people listening to this, um, a lot of them are probably thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds so familiar. And that is the most common response that I usually get when telling folks about the imposter syndrome for the first time. So it's not like we invented this or even that it's a recent psychological phenomenon. I think... Uh, imposter syndrome, I'm sure, existed before the findings of the study, but it was first publicized in the in the 1970s, um, and we can kind of link to that original study. Uh, and it was identified in women, so in particular, like in that first study. Yes. So, uh, despite all of everything that you've um, authentically accomplished, there's like a, a systemic dismissal of all of that stuff in favor of a narrative you have in your head about how you are not capable or talented. So uh, this is something which is really, really tough um, and really, really endemic. So Sarah, why don't you talk about, um, (laughs) why don't you talk about the first time that you heard about the imposter syndrome? We're going to be laughing a lot in this uh, podcast episode just because the thoughts that we have are so ridiculous. Yes, yes, yes. Um, when you say them out loud, they sound totally rational inside your head, of course. <laughs> and I still believe, like, strongly many of my imposter thoughts. But I think one of the ways, you know, we'll get to this, one of the ways to combat the imposter syndrome is to name them out loud and to identify them for what they are. And Sarah, Sarah uh, B., was the one who told me about the imposter syndrome, and I completely thought she was making it up. I thought she just was, like, you know pop psychology <laughs> on the spot coming up with a, a name for making it this up hypothetical syndrome that I had and and I really didn't believe her until for like six months I mean she talked to me about this for a long time and she kept saying but you have the imposter syndrome Sarah you have the imposter syndrome I'm like, yeah. when was this this your first year of grad school it was I think my first year of grad school yeah. and then I uh in my despair was texting uh someone else from undergrad and I told them yeah, my friend says I have the imposter syndrome, whatever that is. And I think I kind of was very dismissal of it. And he just responded back. He said, you know, that's a real thing, right? And and it was just this eye-opener because then, then I Googled it and there are pages that exist about this. And it wasn't just something that, you know, my friend was trying to say to make me feel better. And that's how I first found out about it. So a lot of people, it is becoming, uh, you know, talked about much more and and people are aware of it. But it's still... You know, there's a fair fraction of people that have never heard about it, especially maybe undergrads uh, or early grad students, and even a lot of professors. Um, I was on a committee for academic studies, and and on when the imposter syndrome came up once in one of our committee meetings, only about half the professors were aware of it. So it's still something that uh, you know, just getting people to 
recognize that it exists and it is common. And it's they estimate up to 70% of people experience the imposter syndrome in their lifetime at least once. And, and I would say even maybe a solid 50% experience it quite frequently, especially in grad school it's, or, or as a student. Those are common, common triggers. Do you remember, um, I feel like the first time that you were looking up the Wikipedia article on imposter syndrome, like the last sentence, at least at the time in the Wikipedia article, was like, this is common among grad students. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, it reared its ugly head first a little bit in undergrad, but really strong in grad school. I was able to just overcome it mm. kind of by myself in undergrad through just constant, uh, you know, affirmation through test scores or whatever mm. that I was succeeding in undergrad classes. But graduate school is so much more uh, ambiguous in its uh, testing sort of yeah. and feedback yeah. techniques that I feel like grad students in particular are... Um, you know, succumb to it as well. You know, you're around people that all did very well in undergrad. So suddenly, you know, you're at this different uh, situation and you, the evaluation mechanisms are different and you're doing research and, mm -hmm. you know, someone might get a paper out faster than you. And there's just more uh, variables that are ambiguous, I feel, in grad school, which is one reason why it hits stronger there. Yeah, I think it's also, maybe it's compounded by the fact that grad school, I found it like intrinsically lonelier than undergrad. Um, and I think imposter syndrome is a very lonely experience to have it because um, it's really associated with feelings of shame, you know, or, or at least like kind of feelings of secrecy, um, hence the kind of name imposter. You definitely feel like if you reveal too much about what your fears are about yourself, that you'll be unmasked kind of like that much sooner. Yeah. So yeah, um, they will find out. <laughs> they will find out and you might as well not help them by yeah, exactly. confessing to having these feelings because then they'll know right away. And, <laughs> um, and so I found that it was even worse because I didn't really have the same community that I had in undergrad. Like my cohort, my first year at Harvard was, um, smaller than other cohorts. Like I think your cohort was a bit larger. And, yeah. um, I, what I remember my first year of grad school too, I was trying to navigate a long distance relationship. So a lot of the time, my free time weekends and stuff, I was not in Boston, um, where you and I were graduate students. So my experience as a graduate student that first year was like very lonely, which I think really was sort of, um, I mean, that's just like really fodder for the imposter syndrome is kind of that like feeling of isolation. Yeah. And I would say it's just not limited to that because I feel it really hit me strongly and I had a great cohort and yeah, I had a, a lot point. of community and I had great friends. I had probably the, you know, I feel so fortunate in the, the best friends I've had in my life, you know, um, have in part been here. You know, I've had great friends my whole life, but I really was just so impressed with the amount of community that my cohort had. Yeah, it's so true. That, that, and I was really debilitated by the imposter syndrome to the point where I couldn't function very well and I just wanted to drop out and I remember calling I was quite miserable my, my especially my first six months and I remember calling my dad who um, had a PhD in physics and was a professor and I kept saying you know dad I just want to drop out I'm just not cut out for this I just you know I'm not happy mm -hmm. you know I just want to you know I'm just not meant to be here and and I it happened about six times like every month and a half or month or so in my first year and he would always encourage me um and you know I stuck it through but I was very under the weather I couldn't um 
do any of my hobbies that I normally, I'm very, I have all these hobbies. I like to write, I like to paint, I like to dance, I do mountaineering. I have all these, you know, hobbies that I really enjoy and I couldn't put any energy into them because 100% of my energy was tied up in feeling miserable or in trying to barely tread water in grad school my first year. And I, I felt, uh, so when I would have free time and normally in that free time, in undergrad or, or before, I would do some of my other interests, say I would go dancing or, or write or paint. But in my first year of graduate school, I basically just watched uh, Battlestar Galactica <laughs> on the Chinese YouTube channel uh, illegally every day, you know, after, after classes. And that was because I couldn't process anything that was more complex. You know, I just had to yeah. basically zone out. And I've never felt that way before. Totally draining. And that kind of fed also into my feelings of inadequacy and that I just can't hack it because I, um, you know, I can't thrive in this environment. Um, one of my, I'm remembering back to my first year of grad school, a major feature of my imposter syndrome then was that I was on the wait list at Harvard. Um, so I remember the first time I met you, you were visiting, you were a prospective student, and, you know, I'm only one year ahead of you uh, in grad school, but still I thought, well, she's not on the wait list, and she's so much smarter. <laughs> like, I remember going out to dinner and just thinking, like, she's seems really cool, and it seems like we have lots of stuff in common and whatnot, but, like, there's a one point at which we, we are, just aren't comparable, and that's that Sarah's so much smarter than me. Because she's not on the wait list. Like, I went, <laughs> I went through, oh, well, but she oh, wasn't, well, she wasn't on the wait list. <laughs> that was, like, a major feature of my first year experience in graduate school was that, um, and that, you know, it didn't really help that, uh, that that wait list thing was mentioned, like, many times by folks yes. at Harvard, like, during the admissions process, um, your GRE score, why wasn't it higher? Yeah. You know, or, or a member of our department even brought it up, like, the day I defended which ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. I know. I know, I know, I know. So that was like pretty a good major... for a waitlist student. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, you sure exceeded I... our very low expectations. Oh, nightmare. Well, I also had a comment. It wasn't about the waitlist, but uh, you know, when I visited on that perspective visit, mm -hmm. uh, one of the professors said, "Well, we don't get a lot of applications from Flathead Valley Community College." Oh my god. And it wasn't it didn't really trigger a lot of imposter syndrome, but it, it did make me feel like I'm not the typical student. And and that later fed into imposter syndrome because because I had gone to community college and then I'd gone to a uh, public college at University of Calgary. Um, when I came here, I didn't feel like I had the same background or, uh, you know, yeah, I was I was intimidated basically by by the people who had gone to more prestigious undergrads. Yeah, and and then I felt so that fed a lot into my imposter syndrome as well. I think um, there's a really important feature of imposter syndrome, which is that it often the intensity often correlates with how much your narrative deviates from what's the kind of the dominant narrative of um, a scientific path. So there was that incredible study um, in science that was related to intrinsic. A brilliance, like quote, I'm making the air quote sign, intrinsic brilliance. So the more that your field um, had this perception um, of requiring in intrinsic brilliance to succeed. So for example, things like mathematics and physics, um, folks who are in those fields and folks outside those fields have a perception that it, what it takes to succeed as a mathematician or a physicist is something that's born into you and it can't be taught. 
at the other yeah. kind of end of the spectrum in the study were things like anthropology, for example, or I feel like maybe sociology was one of them. And at this other extreme, um, most folks perceive that you don't have to be born with the features of a good sociologist or a good anthropologist. Those are things you can learn. So what was interesting was that um, innate brilliance, perception of innate brilliance was an incredibly good predictor of fraction of people in the field who are white men. So that like things that um, are perceived to require more innate brilliance um, are like preferentially scare people away um, mm -hmm. who don't have that like dominant narrative of what it means to be a scientist. So what you were saying about having gone to community college, um, imposter syndrome is really strong in like first generation college students or older students um, who tend to attend community college first or in women or in people of color or um, there's so there's like kind of multiple oh like multiple tentacles um yes yeah. of the imposter syndrome. my husband also he's a first generation college student yeah. who attended later who also attended community college and he really had the imposter syndrome strongly all four years of undergrad whereas um because mm. i maybe had less of that background because my dad was a professor and because my brothers and sisters had gone to college and done well in graduate school and, and, you know, had even had physics PhDs, I never felt this, you know, as much of being an outsider from that perspective. And so I, in undergrad, um, you know, I felt like I could get over it easier, but, um, mm. when you have compounding multiple things, you know, you are a woman, you are a person of color, you are a community college, you are a first generation. Mm -hmm. All of these things can add together to make a pretty intractable case, um, you know, of imposter syndrome. And what's funny about it is there's really no evidence for, <laughs> for any of this. So, you know, you might think, oh, well, that makes sense. But no, it really doesn't. Like, you know, by and large, imposter uh, people who suffer from the imposter syndrome are very successful and, and objectively are talented. But it's this sense of not actually internalizing or realizing your own accomplishments, which is kind of sad when you think about it, because you are talented objectively, and you have done things that are uh, worthy of feeling proud, but you can't internalize that feeling of success or your own accomplishments. You know, on the other hand, we all don't want to get big egos and, you know, uh, uh, be too, too, not humble, but yeah. the imposter syndrome is like the other extreme of that is that you can't even appreciate that you, um, are doing something that's worthy to be, uh, considered successful. We had, um, a really good question at inclusive astro, uh, the inclusive astronomy conference at Vanderbilt last week. There was a session about, um, imposter syndrome and other, um, and like in particular, like practices to kind of ameliorate barriers once you're within science. So not barriers to entering science, but like once you're inside science, what are the barriers to success? And imposter syndrome was one of those. And there was a question from a tenured professor uh, in the audience, a very successful person. Um, and he asked, um, you know, I, I almost hesitate to ask this, but is there like a certain amount of the imposter syndrome that's kind of healthy? And my response to that was that, I mean, it's kind of like you're articulating, Sarah, there's kind of a gray area because yeah. there's like a healthy amount of self-doubt. But the problem is that with imposter syndrome, you often take yourself out of the running for things. Yes. And that's yeah. where it really becomes harmful when you don't have yeah. an accurate reflection of your yeah. own promise. And, um, and so many people get like lost 
are, are lost to us in science because of that. Yes. <sighs> and also, I've met people, very few, who um, are very settled in the in that middle of the spectrum. They're they're confident in who they are. They're not, you know, overly confident. Uh, they have enough uh, self-doubt and they thrive and they're happy and they are doing well. So I think there is, you know, a, uh, a middle ground between, you know, not enough, uh, uh, I don't know what, like, if self-doubt's the right word, but, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. If, you know, there is, there's a balance yeah. there where you can realize your accomplishments and be, happy of those and uh also you know recognize when when you might need to learn something else or you know uh adjust your strategy for the future so i think i think the imposter syndrome isn't an ideal to strive for because um, <laughs> it's horrible and miserable and any, anyone who's had it re- recognizes how insidious it is and how it often comes in waves. That's the other thing I've noticed is, especially when you're doing something new, like a transition, that you're a new postdoc, you're a new grad student, you're applying for faculty for the first time, you know, any of these sorts of new things that you haven't yet fully uh, felt comfortable with, that seems to be, to me, when it hits the strongest. Yeah. And, and often, so I didn't have the imposter syndrome as much when I was finishing grad school because I finally felt like, I've made it as a graduate student. Mm-hmm. I belong here. Yes. I did okay. I defended. <laughs> and now I'm going to enter my postdoc and I know <laughs> it's just going to hit hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's um let's do Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's pause for a second. Okay, so that's a really I think we did like a pretty complete job of giving a basic definition of imposter syndrome and also sort of an overview of how it affects not only ourselves but kind of the field as a whole. Um kind of big picture um uh, sociological information about who suffers from imposter syndrome. Um, and the way we were going to kind of craft this particular episode is um, first thinking about the imposter thoughts we're currently grappling with. Um, the reason why we want to do that is sort of, as Sarah said in the beginning of this episode, is that a lot of power gets removed from them. A lot of their venom is taken out when we say them out loud and our friends um, treat them with humor you know, that tends to really help. And then uh, in this... <laughs> you can't help because they're so ridiculous. I know. There's, there's, when, you, when you hear ours, you'll, you'll laugh as well, I'm You'll sure. laugh, yeah. Um, and then, so we'll kind of, like, start with uh, with that, like, with some humor, and then we'll kind of delve more into, like, our imposter scripts. So, like, when, in particular, our feelings tend to be triggered. Sarah already gave one example, which is kind of in a, in a time of major transition. And then we were going to move into um, amelioration strategies, uh, so let's <laughs> let's dive right into our current imposter thoughts. Should I? I feel like I should start with my empty potato chip bag yes, that's imagery. Yeah, I have very, <laughs> my imposter thought come. My imposter thoughts come with very particular imagery, <laughs> which is why they're kind of humorous. So um, it's no longer the case that I have imposter thoughts about whether I could pass calculus, which was my um, the nature of my imposter thoughts in college, and it's no longer could I get into grad school. Now it's, um, my imposter thoughts have matured, uh, like a fine wine, um, to, <laughs> to a point where it's, um, related to really high level things, like whether or not I can get a faculty job and then succeed in that faculty job. So in particular, um, my imposter thoughts lately have really been around, 
faculty stuff. So I perceive that a lot of really talented people around me that graduated within a year of me or so are kind of getting like s snapped up by different departments. And um, that makes me feel kind of like an, an empty potato chip bag, like blowing down the street. This is the image that I had that I'm kind of like, nobody wants me and like, and how sad, you know, like, um, I don't even have any potato chips anymore. My, <laughs> a friend I told this to, who's kind of a newly minted professor himself was like, no, you're a full potato chip bag. I think this is kind of related to the feeling that I have like an expiration date and it's coming soon that I'm like, um, a can of beans is another one <laughs> that I used for imposter that. So I haven't, I haven't technically expired. I'm like really, I'm high up on the shelf. I haven't technically expired, but I'm kind of covered in dust. dust. I'm covered in dust and nobody wants to cook with that can of beans because they're fresher, newer cans of beans. <laughs> so even though I haven't technically expired, I don't look delicious anymore. And that's another <laughs> major. I can't really listen to this. I know, I know, I know. It's so really funny. It's so I, it is how I feel. And I feel like, um, like I am not, like I wouldn't be kind of a desirable candidate for a department. Um, even though you were on three short lists this year. Yes. Yes. Even though, even though that, even though, even though that, um, still I'm the can of beans. That's like a very, <laughs> very persistent one. And I, um, yeah, why don't we trade? Do you want to do one? Okay. Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell my oldest one that I, uh, uh, from undergrad actually, yeah. just cause it's kind of ridiculous. Um, was I was taking uh, E&M, mm -hmm. and I just had so many imposter thoughts Horrific. through the whole class, yeah. uh, you know, in part because E&M. E&M you know, is like, just like a hotbed <laughs> for imposter thoughts. <laughs> and, and in particular, this professor, um, there was another student in the class who would always ask these really kind of long, complexly constructed sentences that were hard to wade through, and, and so whenever he, the student would ask a question, the professor would be like, oh, that's a really insightful question. Oh and then go and proceed to Ugh. answer it. But then I asked a question once, once because I did not ask a question after this. Um, and the teacher said, did you read chapter seven? Oh, yeah. And I just Nightmare. said, yeah, I have. And they said, well, you should, you should know this. And then they said, does someone else want to answer Sarah's question? And then no one could, and then he finally did, but I felt so horrified. I never asked any more questions. So we get Gosh. to the final exam, and I did okay, but not great. You know, I knew I missed a few few of the things. And so I was just sure that maybe, I don't know, I got a B of some flavor, mm -hmm. you know. And so when my <laughs> grades came up on the computer, I covered the whole screen so I wouldn't see it right away. And then I slowly lowered my hand to reveal my grade, and it and it said A+, plus, and I just shouted, no fucking way. I just want to roll my eyes at you from 3,000 miles away. Then, then I was convinced <laughs> that it was a typographical error. <laughs> I was, like, really convinced for a solid couple months. I mean, this wasn't just a couple days. I had this whole theory. I was like, I probably got a B+, plus, and the person just accidentally typed A+. Plus right, and, that's you much know, more some, likely. Exactly. Right. There was just some typographical error, and my true <laughs> grade is a B plus, and, and I didn't even go by the, the professor's door because I did not want to see... To ruin the ruin, illusion. To ruin the <laughs> illusion. I didn't want to know. I just didn't want to know. I figured ignorance is bliss. Like, just don't find out the real grade. And so I never went by... I, like, avoided that hallway and, and for several months. And it was only resolved, like, a couple months later when that professor made an offhanded comment to a third party 
and it was relayed back to me that he was actually very impressed with my uh, final exam uh, in that class. And, and then I felt like, okay, I actually deserved it. But it took, you know, without that conversation to this day, I would tell you it was, it was, <laughs> it was like an accident. A error. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah okay. Um, that's amazing. Truly. Like that's absurd. <laughs> happen i really i mean i know it seems reasonable to you like there's there's this feeling that no matter how much external evidence there is it's never enough to counteract what you know to be true like you don't need any evidence in your heart because you know that you're not smart so it just and which is why it's so absurd like this with the a plus like i just love that you were looking at a literal a plus and you were like i'm dumb Typical imposter thoughts. I have ones that are kind of social in nature, too. Like, So it's not only that I weaseled my way into astronomy because of, I don't know, like I fooled somebody or they got a name wrong, you know, or I was admitted to Harvard because another Sarah Ballard applied to Harvard that year or something. <laughs> it's often based on um, what I think are my social skills. So I'll think that I'm progressing, like, not because... I'm talented, but because people like feel sorry for me, and <laughs> I definitely feel this that this is true, and like despite all evidence to the contrary, especially with people I really admire, like who are my peers, I feel like they all know secretly that, and they kind of pity me in a way, because I'm. <laughs> Because I try so hard. And they want that last can of beans to get taken off the I know, and they and feel bad for me. Anyway. And they know, they know that I'm a little bit, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. They all know, but they won't tell me because they're too polite. That's a major one. I've kind of definitely grown out of thinking that that's the case for more senior scientists. Like, I am more willing to accept praise from people who I know kind of have no, they're not like my friends. Yeah. Which is interesting, you know, or people who I know have kind of given me tough love at one point or another. And then I'm like, this person yeah. would tell me where I think at, our friendship was actually super valuable there. Because I know, like, you would tell me if something was up. Like, you know, <laughs> I feel like you would I'm, tell I'm me. I'm not shy about my opinion, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, maybe, but maybe you would, like, you would try to be extra gentle about it. But, like, I feel like you would say, like, maybe astronomy is not for you, Sarah. You would say it, you would say it really gently. So I kind of tell myself that sometimes. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's funny to hear you say these things, because of course we all know that you have had great success. My favorite is that you won. Don't, don't you dare. As a finishing graduate student, you won, you won four prize fellowships. I can't even get this out. You won four prize fellowships, and you single wrote the epoxy pipeline and I'll never forget this Sarah, as long lo- as I live. Sarah loves this yeah it's she heard <laughs> Sarah and I have this like ongoing story where like it'll be Sarah will be attending my funeral and <laughs> and she'll have to get the last word in so my gravestone will say like she tried but she was an imposter <laughs> and Sarah will like whisper four prize fellowships <laughs> Single-handedly wrote the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and she'll get the last word. Um, yeah, yeah. You love beating on that dead like, horse. Three short lists of faculty. You know? yeah. I, I have more. I have more data to to, to throw back. But you love that I old mean, dead this horse. Is how you ridiculous love it. it is. You know, Sarah's a very successful, by all objective measures, uh, early career scientist, and yet you know we still just feel that we're not worthy to be here. And, and that's, and that's why the, as, as Sarah was saying, that's why it's so difficult because it often you limit your choices. And I really felt like I didn't want to uh, apply for fellowships and I wasn't going to apply for a lot of fellowships actually for postdocs. And I felt like I just wouldn't get any. And then when I did get a fellowship, I got the Simons fellowship. I still am mostly convinced <laughs> that it's only because uh, one of my advisors was on the committee, and I know nepotism, from a third it? party That's how that it they is. had to leave the room <laughs> when my application was discussed, but I'm still convinced in my heart of hearts that Jeez. the presence you know, of them trusting his letter of recommendation means that I, that's the only reason. I'm pretty sure that's true. Like I'm, I, I would give that like an 85% likelihood of being true so that's my current imposter syndrome you also got thought. you got headhunted for a faculty job for like a hire of opportunity situation like so much before me this is i love to talk about how you lap me i'm making air calls <laughs> you yeah, like right. lap well, me have... in the pool and you're still like i'm the true imposter we could <laughs> argue about this forever and indeed this is like a major feature of how we how grapple we with it. Yeah, yeah of how we yeah. grapple with it is making each other laugh because i don't know laughing diffuses a lot of the power of the imposter thoughts. Hi, Sarah B. chiming in here. This is where Sarah R. and I chose to end the first half of our episode on the imposter syndrome related to self-care. So please join us for the second half on the next episode.